don't know about you, but that was a nice, deep spiritual breath for me. Growing up, my mother's favorite movie was Pollyanna. It's a classic movie. It came out in 1960. Um, It's about an orphan child of missionaries who goes to live with her cold-hearted but very, very wealthy aunt. Um, She goes about playing the glad game. You may have heard of Pollyanna from that. She can make anything, something to be glad about um, into a glad game. She's known for that. And she wins over the hearts of all the workers in her aunt's house, all of the townspeople. And with her positive spin on everything, she slowly wins over everyone and changes lives of people along the way. Pollyanna, at the beginning of the movie, learns that on Sundays they have roast chicken for dinner, and she's so excited. The cook tells her, though, that no one looks forward to Sundays because you only get a sour stomach on Sundays, not from the chicken, (laughs) but from the church at the beginning of the Sunday. And on her first Sunday in town, they go to church. The pastor gets up and... um, and really gets up like the camera angle is like 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 looking like this up at him. You know those churches that have the the preacher high up, and so he climbs the stairs up to where he's going to give the sermon, and he immediately starts railing against the congregation. The clip is so good that I wanted to show it to you this morning. This is not all of the sermon, um, but this is um, part of it. Now, I'm going to go ahead and apologize, especially if you're online, because we know Zoom's sound is not being really great right now. But um, the sound is not great. This is the only clip, though. I spent way too much time trying to find a better one. Um, but I apologize for that. But it's so good, it it won't matter. Um, take a look.
<laughs> My favorite parts are the brimstone. Um, and, and then when he gets really excited and his hair starts shaking, Eva and Eva and Eva. <laughs> so last Sunday, I left worship um, feeling a little bit like the Pollyanna preacher. Um, preaching on Romans seemed like a good idea when we started. And and I do think it's really important. Like, I, I think I told you last week that I texted Michael and I was like, remind me why I wanted to do this study in May, in May of all months, when especially if you have children, like May is chaos. Um, if, or if you work in a school, it's chaos. You're, you're going a thousand miles an hour. And on Sunday mornings, we're like walking through the theological weeds. Why did I think that was a good idea? Um, Michael joked, he said, you know, we could just take that out of the Bible. Um, and I was like, don't think I haven't thought of it this week. Um, I, we're talking about it because we can't just pick and choose and just take things out of the Bible. That's a joke. But um, sometimes um, uh, preaching, again, on Romans seems like a good idea, but it's an intense book. Uh, as we talked about earlier, despite the quippy verses that we take away from it, we see a little bit of Paul, like this preacher. If you if you think of Paul saying those scriptures that Michael read earlier, like the preacher in this clip, you, you can see it. It's not a far jump. Um, he is trying desperately to preach for these people to get along, for the Jews to believe in Jesus, for them all to come together for a complete display of the kingdom of God. We'll come back to Paul and his message here, but in a scene later in the movie, Pollyanna, who is the little blonde, if you've not seen this movie, um, at the beginning, who's like, her eyes are real big and she's looking up at the chandelier shaking. Pollyanna stumbles upon the preacher practicing his sermons out in a field. She offers to listen to him and to let him practice it um, like she used to do for her father. Um, the preacher brushes her off, and um, then she asks him a question as she's walking away. Um, do you like being a minister? At first, he acts offended and wonders why she would ask such a thing. But then when she says she asked her father that question once, the preacher is dying to know what her father said. How did he reply? And his reply had been that yes, he did, but that it made him sad sometimes when he just couldn't get through to his congregation. The pastor asks if her father ever found a solution, and she says that he read something one day that helped him. A quote from Abraham Lincoln, when you look for the bad in mankind expecting to find it, you surely will. She said that her father then decided he was going to go looking for the good in people. And that's when he started looking for the texts, the glad texts. Pollyanna tells the preacher, there are 800 happy texts. Did you know that? The minister says, no, I didn't. Pollyanna says, yes, well, there are. My father said if God took the trouble to tell us 800 times to be glad and rejoice, he must have wanted us to do it. Now, this number of texts in theological circles has been questioned a little bit. And um, some of these are taken kind of out of context, out of um, a larger text, obviously. It, but, but those are reality. And so why don't we just preach those? This is a struggle as pastors. We see the world 
around us. We read the news. We look at what's happening. We see what people are doing in the name of Christianity. Um, We feel called to be prophetic, to keep speaking the word of God into new life, new generations. We want to keep sharing how these words continue giving new life. Sometimes We find ourselves preaching in a certain direction for a certain purpose. Um, I've said that I know I fight the temptation to sometimes preach against sermons that I heard growing up um, or even ones that are happening like right now um, that maybe I don't agree with. Um, But but it's because I, I know the harm that they did to me that they say they're representing God, the kind of harm I believe they're doing in the world today. And I I feel a kind of responsibility to be different. And sometimes that means for seasons, I am not preaching on the happy text or the glad text. Sometimes in May, with all that it has to offer us, with all the ways that some of our church members' lives are changing, we are walking through the theological weeds of Romans. And on those Sundays or in those seasons of worship, I can walk away feeling like, did I get it right? Is this the word that you needed to hear or that God wanted me to share? Or did I come off looking like that preacher in Pollyanna, just maybe with better clothes and accessories? I could do the preaching and shake my hair around, but we'll, we'll, I'll refrain from that. I wonder if Paul ever worried that he was coming across that way? My guess is no. (laughs) We see his passion in the words of Romans. He sees the weight of this moment, the way that the Jews who worship Jesus, the Jews who did not worship Jesus, and the Gentiles who worship Jesus are all representing, in a way, this new Christian movement. He knows the weight of what it will mean if the Jews do not see Jesus the way that he does. Not everyone got to have a Damascus Road kind of experience where Jesus came to them in a blinding light. And you can feel his intensity in the images that he uses, in those heavy words that were read earlier. As I said on the first Sunday, scholars have come to understand that the images and theology, the way that Paul is explaining these Old Testament passages is not necessarily the way that we understand them today, but he was interpreting them for this audience, for this group of people. He, like us last week, uh, and if you haven't heard or weren't part of last week's sermon, I know online even it wasn't a great sound. Um, I did actually upload the podcast this week, so you can you can listen to it because I do believe it's an important word. Um, Paul has moved on to a great hope as the author uh, Kirk, um, who has written this study that we're using to guide us, says, this story that Paul has been telling has a future as well. And what's the future that Paul sees? What's the hope he sets our eyes on? The glory of God. Not just that we glorify God, but that we also get to be part of the awesome. We share in it. We reflect it. We embody it. We are the glory of God. And maybe that's why getting the we right takes up so much space in the first few chapters. If we are going to be the fullness of God's glory, we need to get the fullness of God's people into the room. In verses 1 through 5 of chapter 5, Paul moves from our past, 
which he terms as justification. That's a Jeopardy word for you. To processing, to possessing the spirit, which is right now our present, and then on to a future glory. And weaving through all of this, as Paul talks about it, is this element of peace. Not anxiety, not panic, not conflict. There is peace even in the suffering, Paul says. Even if there are a million things that simply have to be endured, peace with hope. Kurt goes on to say, in the present we live between the past of Jesus' sacrifice and the future of final salvation. This present is a place of peace because of where the story came from and where it's going. No need to worry. No need to panic. We have the confidence that God is for us because of what Jesus has done. I can't tell you how many times I've wished that this big story would overwrite the little stories that overwhelm me day by day. Maybe that's the hardest part of living into this vision that Paul paints for us. And maybe little by little, the story of peace with God can become big enough to nudge out the smaller stories of non-peace that keep me up at night or that send me into a panic. And that, to me, is a glad text. It's a reminder that I'm part of something bigger. I'm part of a larger story, a larger story that we know ends well. Paul keeps on developing this sermon for his people. Um, And in the last half of chapter 5, all the way through chapter 8, he says that salvation is not only about forgiveness of sins or forgiveness of guilt, but it's also about the deliverance from enslaving powers. Paul uses this imagery of being free from slavery to our old ways of thinking and doing. And this is one of those parts of Romans that makes it tough to read in 2023. (laughs) Um, He would not have, uh, for Paul, slavery existed. And he couldn't have imagined a world without it. Um, He couldn't have imagined probably that it might not be appropriate to use slavery image to a a group of people that weren't slaves, that that some of them may have even owned slaves. Um, But here we are. And uh, it reminds me every time I hear this, um, these words that talk about freedom in Christ, um, the praise song that talks about freedom in God. And um, the best line is where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And you don't just say it like you shout it and there's hand motions that go with it. And you stop singing and you're shouting. But every time I've done this, it's with a group of white middle class or upper class people all shouting out that, you know, they've been freed from their slavery. And there's a little something odd about that. But we do know what it feels like to be bound up in something that won't let us go. We can acknowledge the problematic nature of the imagery, but also know what it feels like to grow up maybe in in an oppressive version of Christianity, to be taught in an oppressive God who plays on our deepest fears. I once found a journal, I think I've shared this before, but for my teenage years and the kinds of sins I confessed during my daily quiet time that I believed I was a sinner if I didn't have in the morning, because that's when it has to happen. It had to happen a certain way. But in this particular prayer, I am asking forgiveness from God for eating a fatty hamburger at McDonald's. 
these were the kinds of things that the God that I was given, the God that I had created, cared about. My thinness and my obedience. We can know what it feels like to feel oppressed by our anxiety, by depression, by the wounds and trauma of unhealthy family and work systems. We know what it feels like to have our identity bound up into something that we just want release from. Medicine and therapy and coaching all help with that. But also knowing that God cares about our well-being, does not wish for us to be weighed down by these things, changes our relationship with all of them. What if we lived like we were really free? Paul goes on in his sermon to talk about something that you may have heard up uh, before, maybe not. If you grew up in church, um, he talks about Jesus as the second Adam. Now, PSA, we're getting into some weeds here, but it's important. Um, it's something that it, that does not exist in the Old Testament prophecies or even how Jesus talks about himself, but it's an image that Paul conjures up um, to try to make a point here for his audience. And, and there's some problems with the image. Um, I, I would bet that um, <laughs> it's kind of like when someone shares something on social media or in an email trying to share their beliefs, but you can't give a full explanation, and so everybody takes it the wrong way. I would bet that if Paul could sit down and talk with us and explain this more, um, we wouldn't have used it the way that we have to build beliefs around Maybe you've never heard of like the language of second Adam before when it comes to Jesus. But you know that the belief that Adam and Eve did something and all of us are still paying the price for it. This is the part of the idea. This is where it comes from that we are all sinners from birth. And that is our identifying quality. That's the difference here. Not just that we're sinners and we're humans, but that's our identifying quality when God looks at us. It also means that he takes on some ideas about Jesus being atonement for all of us that aren't exactly found in other places in Scripture or in the way that Jesus talks about himself. Paul says that Adam's one sin leads to the judgment of all people. Jesus is subjected to mistreatment, and it leads to his eventual death, which leads to our vindication. It's a journey. It's a journey that Paul takes here in 517, but then he, or excuse me, takes there, but then in 517, he goes on to say that death reigns because of Adam, but because of Jesus, not just life reigns, not even Jesus reigns or God reigns, Instead, he says that the people who receive God's gift of grace in Christ will reign in life. In other words, we reign. If you go back to Genesis 1, you'll see that God has a purpose for humanity just beyond image bearing and reproducing. God doesn't just look at us as carrying that sin of Adam. Our work is to rule over creation as God would. As Paul compares and contrasts Adam and Jesus, he actually catches a glimpse of humanity's glorious future. Now, that phrase is by our author, Kirk, of our study, but humanity's glorious future. I love the way that's worded. That's, that is something I want to be a part of. 
The point is not to leave humanness behind, but to restore and renew humanity. We are a divine family made in the image of God to reign over this world. Kurt says, though, this is part of our problem. We've gotten this wrong because if anything in the history of humanity and, and Christianity in particular has ever gone sideways, it's this idea that we're in charge of the world. It's been the seat of crusades, inquisitions, and genocide. It's underpinned slavery and religious discrimination. And not a little of the environmental degradation and ecological crisis we're facing has its origins and ongoing justifications here as well. But all of this comes from uh, imitating the wrong king. It comes from taking our cues from the destructive powers of sin and death whose rule Paul ties to the sin of Adam. This is not how God rules. Just look at that opening chapter of Genesis. Every time you turn around, God is elevating and empowering creation. Paul goes on to talk a lot about being in Christ. This is an image that he uses over and over again in this letter. And for him, it means that humanity's future is to to rule in such a way that the self-giving Christ, the son-giving God, that they are full on in display in our lives. Empowering, life-giving, we're revealing all of that. There's a renewed humanity through life in Christ. When Paul uses those words like justification, that legal consequences of sin, uh, are left behind and there's a new way of life, a new power, a new transformed future that can become our reality. I love the House Hunters shows, especially the House Hunters International, for some reason, becomes very soothing for me. Um, I literally, a couple years ago, you may remember, I missed a Sunday, I'd I had some spasms in my neck and my back, and I missed a couple nights of sleep. And during that time, I had my soothing show on literally 24-7, House Hunters International. I actually have a little trouble watching it now because I watched it so much that week that I was in pain and in the middle of the night um, that it brings back some of those memories. But the thing you hear over and over in these episodes when they're, especially when they're hunting for a vacation home or when they're moving internationally, is that they're choosing to do this because life is so busy, so full. One of the parents or both of the parents is working so hard in that other place that they can't imagine or get hold of life to make it slow down enough to enjoy time together, to have a slower pace of life. They have to go somewhere else to do that. There's something about being in a new place, in new rhythms, new people that allow you to experience life, to experience parts of yourself that you wouldn't normally experience in the day-to-day life. This is the kind of image that Paul is giving here. It's like the person who says, I can't imagine slowing down, not working so hard, so I need to move my location. The location here being in Christ gives us a new perspective on the world. New things are possible here that have never been possible before. There's hope, there's grace, there's healing and wholeness. Here is where there is freedom, that freedom we talked about earlier, and that peace. 
It's being firmly in life with Christ that we experience all there is to offer through Jesus. And it's communal. What we experience and who we are in this place is not just for us, but it's for the world. Nadia Boltzweber, an author and teacher that I quote often, gave a sermon recently where she said that what she's learned over the course of her life is that wherever she goes, she's still herself. She said a year and a half ago, she walked the Camino, which is a long trail, a 500-mile pilgrimage across Spain. It's something that contemplative Christians have been doing for centuries. Um, and and I, she said, I would love to sit here and type words that indicated that I transcendentally floated above the road in some kind of sainted goodness for every one of those 500 miles. I did not. She said that as soon as she met her trailmates, she began judging, especially one of them. He got on her nerves. One that she kept running into. Every morning she'd get up and go for coffee in whatever town they were in, and he was there. She kept winding up in line with him and in a group with him while they were walking on the trail, and it was more than she could handle. She was having trouble being around him and hearing from God. She said, the point is, even on a spiritual pilgrimage, I was me, good and bad. She said she did also manage to meet uh, many people, lovely people that she liked. Um, She said, when I became a mother, still me. When I became a pastor, still me. When I got divorced, still me. I was me when I was young and foolish but had great abs. I am me in menopause as my heart and my body soften into something new. I will still be me as I continue to age. After any self-improvement scheme I fall for, I will still be me. After any new failure, after any wished-for success, still me. She decided that part of her core personality, the thing that made her a great author, a great speaker, was her keen observation of people. But that also always made it hard for her to put her judgment aside and totally experience and this kind of transcendental hearing from Christ moment on this 500-mile hike. She said, I am still me. And in middle age, I can finally say that. For the most part, I'm okay with it. Sure, there are some jagged edges that continue to snag on the fabric of my life. There's a downside to nearly every good thing about me, but no one escapes this place without carrying a whole load of contradictions about themselves. It's kind of the only thing that makes us interesting enough to have stories to tell. I bring that up. I share her story to say that if you're like me, you think, you know, being in Christ sounds lovely. This in Christ fairy tale sort of place that we could be. Wherever there is freedom, where there's hope and where there's peace, no matter what. Yes, I want free to be free. I want peace. I want to be part of God's reign in the world, making things right. But have you met me? (laughs) Have you seen my life? Wherever I go, I am still me. And the truth is that we are made in the image of God, just as we are. There are upsides and downsides to who we are, but all of that has been made free, has been blessed, is continuing to be reformed. For the work of God in Christ. Our identifying mark when we come into this world is not our faults. Our identifying mark is that we're made in the image 
of God. It's in Christ that we're lovingly refined to be the better image of God in the world, to rule as God would with love and care each in our own way. We are who we are, and we don't need to wallow in that or feel shame about that. We are made for this glorious purpose when we are in Christ, in this new place, in this new perspective, when we are in Christ. And that's the glad text this morning. I'm still me everywhere I go, but when I go there, when I go in Christ, letting the way that Jesus sees me, the way that Jesus keeps shaping me, I'm living out my glorious purpose in this world, just as I am and just as I'm becoming. The same is true for you. And in this place, in this in Christ place, the power struggles, the things that shame us in this world, the kinds of burdens we carry, none of that holds the same value here. We are free from those. This morning, let's be fully ourselves and live lives fully in Christ, in the place where hope, peace, purpose, and freedom are possible. Amen. Will you pray with me?